All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckstables? What the fuckaholics? Oh, I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. This is it. I sit here early in the morning. I'm here early in the morning, groggy, a little bit tired, slightly hallucinating, listening to the sound of my own heartbeat, compulsively tweeting. Not my heartbeat, but yeah, well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? I don't even know how to make that work. What does that even mean? Why am I even here? See, that's the big question, isn't it? On today's show, Ben Sidron, the jazz musician, writer, teacher, uh, spiritual thinker. I, you know, I, I'll explain to you how this came about. I mean, I'm sure some of you are like, who the hell is Ben Sidron? I was the same way, but I got to be honest with you. It was one of the best conversations I've had in my life. And I'll I'll tell you about it in a little bit. Where are we at now? What's happening? I know I reached out to you folks uh, on uh, last week there to to sort of uh, diagnose me psychologically because I was on my way to a psychiatric evaluation. Uh, I think it might be my first one actually ever. I don't know what I was expecting. I did walk out with a prescription. I'm going to tease this for one more episode, to be quite honest with you, because, uh, you know, stuff is coming in. People are diagnosing me. People have big ideas. Some of them are not nice. Uh, But I I think just the fact that people are doing it is exciting. And it's all food for thought. But I'm not going to reveal those. I'm not going to reveal the medication. I'm not going to uh, tell you what, uh, what was suggested you know, my experience with prescriptions is uh, I think that the actual idea that I get one is enough for me. I don't always go get them filled because sometimes I just don't believe them. I've never been so sick as to need one to live. Uh, so so it's relative to that. I have been prescribed things on trial basis. I do uh, I do like to have a little stash of the uh, of the uh, what do you call it? It's not called Zovirix anymore. I get the cold sores on the old lip occasionally, so I need that stuff. A cyclovir, whatever the fuck it is now. I don't know. It's good to have that stuff around so I don't walk on stage with some, looking like I get punched in the mouth. But uh, yeah, so I went in. All I'm going to tell you is this, is that I spent about an hour and a half this, uh, with this psychiatrist. And it's not that I'm wary. It's just that in my mind, and I think in, in a lot of creative people's minds, and I'm the kind of guy that, uh, you know, sometimes recommends against us. Look, if you're fucked up in the head and you need and you need some head medicine, you need some head salve, you know, you should put that shit in there. You know, especially if you're, you're going down the hole, if you're, if you're falling down the tunnel of self, you might need to cushion that with some pills. You know, what gets you into a psychiatrist's office? Look, I know why I'm in therapy. I'm in therapy because I'm in a relationship and I don't want to fuck it all up. It's very good. Preemptive couples counseling is is very good, but it, it, there's no such thing as preemptive with me. We're fully emptive almost immediately in any situation. And and uh, the relationship I'm, I'm in now is good, but she's a pip. She's a firecracker. We're both a little volatile. And, and you know, you got to figure out how to communicate. So that's what drove me to therapy. It was practical. What drove me into the psychiatrist's office was I'm experiencing, uh, you, you know, intense. My my brain feels like it's pushed up against the back of my face, like you know, everything is very close to the surface. There's one way to to realize that, and I don't want to be hackneyed about it, but I, you know, living in Los Angeles, I uh, there's really there's only one complaint you can have ever is that it's traffic, and traffic is very revealing. It's a metaphor for life. It's who you are. How you think in the car. I mean, you're just trying to get from point A to point B, but where the fuck your brain is during that journey, who the hell knows? 
but it's amazing how consistently irritating and how consistent the reality of it is and what you meditate on in traffic. Can you rise above it? Can you accept that this is just the way shit is and you've got to prepare accordingly? Or are you in your car going, fuck, what fuck? How is it? I was in traffic on Wednesday night and my brain was trying to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, render some explanation. There's no fucking explanation. There's too many fucking, you know, the roads aren't prepared. God damn it. And I had to get someplace. It was Wednesday night at 8.30 and the fucking freeway was packed and my brain's trying to explain that to itself. Like, you know, where, why, where could people be going on a Wednesday? What is going on on Wednesday night that this has to happen? Hundreds and hundreds of cars, thousands of cars. No explanation. I couldn't understand it. I had somewhere to be. There was no fucking way in my mind that other people had to be anyplace on a Wednesday night. It's Wednesday and then, and then it goes from there to like, where's their sense of urgency? This isn't a, we're not on a joy ride here. We're not, this isn't a, a Sunday drive. This is a Wednesday night clusterfuck for no reason. And I got to be somewhere. Where's their sense of urgency? I feel the anger rising. And I can't get to that place right now where it's just, look, man, it's out of your control. See, that's the spiritual route. That's the the practical minded route. Look, what are you going to do? What are you going to sit here and give yourself fucking cancer? You know, because of something you can't control. Is that how you're going to do it? And then I dumped my anger on somebody else. And it was it was kind of a shameful thing. That's always the fucking situation, isn't it? But they couldn't hear me. I just like a, a smart car pulled up next to me. When they, you don't see those that much. They're kind of new to the American landscape. A little smart car pulled up next to me, and I, and I looked over, and I saw the guy in it, and I thought to myself, you deserve to die. You deserve to die. What is that? And then I thought, like, well, that's a little harsh. What are you talking about? And then I realized, like, if you're in one of those cars, even if you die in an accident in a smart car, and it's not your fault, people are going to say, like, yeah, well, you know, yeah, it's a, maybe you should have bought a whole car. Maybe that would have been a... A good idea for you until everybody's driving cars that size i think it's a tremendous liability no matter how safe they say it is and i know it's economically it's proactive you, you leave a a smaller carbon footprint but there's no reason you can't get stuck under the shoe of a semi-truck that footprint what about that one might want to be wary of that good for you for doing the right thing but come on man there might be a truck driver in the middle of a, uh, you know sexting a uh truck stop hustler and you just end up he doesn't even know that he hit you just looks in his rearview mirror thinking one of his tires kind of peeled itself and there you are tumbling into garbage in your smart car hey look man that wasn't so upbeat what are we doing where did i get to that oh yeah so I, i'm at the psychiatrist's office and he tells me there's a british psychiatrist who has an analogy for the for the mind uh, the psychiatrist explained to me my legacy as somebody who comes from uh, bipolarity uh you know that uh, i share a genome with my father but not a phenome you know the way my brain's going differently so so uh so there's a little hint for you okay uh, and then he goes, you know, the brain has a bucket in it. There's a bucket in the brain and everyone's got a different size bucket and how much that bucket could hold is relative to your biology and also to your conditioning and how you were brought up. So it's a bucket issue that, you know, your bucket is overflowing. And I'm like, no shit. My bucket is overflowing. There's a, you know, there's a, it's always filling up. Even when I'm sweeping, there's a drip. I got to have the bucket there to catch the drip. So I got an overflowing bucket. That's the poetic explanation. And it makes good sense to me. And by the way, I feel like I haven't checked in with you people about, uh, 
you know, my relationship. Yeah, everything's going pretty good. You know, we're having our issues, but we're working through them and I'm not ruining it. I'm right at the fucking juncture emotionally and psychologically where I ruin every relationship and we are moving through it and things are okay. We're both working. Life is pretty good. We're okay. I just have to turn. I just have to empty my bucket. Did I mention who's on the show today? Ben Sidron. This is one of the best shows I have ever had. Well, it's a great talk is what I'm saying. I, I mean, it's hard for me to really decide what the best shows I've ever had are. But it, it, it was an amazing talk with a guy. So This has happened a couple of times. His son reached out to me and said, I think you should talk to my father. He's a jazz musician. He's respected. He's been a jazz musician and teacher and writer for years. And I'm like, I don't know who he is. And I started looking at his stuff. Who's this Ben Sidron guy? God, he's a real guy. He's been around for a long time. He's written books. He's done interviews himself with jazz musicians. He's played with some of the greats. Yeah, I want to talk to this guy. You know, his son was very, you know, very persistent. And I sat down and talked to Ben Sidron about creativity, about improvisation, about the nature of life and of art and of spirituality. I mean, it was fucking brain bending. It was a great conversation. Because his son thought we should talk. You got to talk to my pop. But I, I tell you, man, you know, I'm a guy that tries to get into the present by being immediately present and engaging emotionally with whatever the situation is if there's another human being in the room. Even if they're not in the room. The idea of improvisation, the idea of being on stage and not knowing what's going to happen, but trusting yourself enough to let it happen is something I love. And, you know, trying to get answers, big answers. You know, Sidron was there, man. I mean, he was there. We had a great talk. I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's talk to Ben Sidron. Ben Sidron, I, you know, the, the interesting thing is, really, is that, uh, you know, I have a limited understanding of jazz. Yeah. I have to be honest. I, I did not know your work. Yeah. And that, that upsets me. Because uh, you're a guy that's, you know, been, you know, in the studio doing music for most of your life. You've got at least, what, 40 records out, 30 records <laughs> Sometimes of seems, your own. Yeah, no, 30 some plus. That's knows. a lot of records. It's a lot of records. And now I feel like an asshole. I'm like, how do I not know this guy? Well, because I've been a gourmet item on the shelves for a long time. I know that feeling. <laughs> you know, I know you do. And it's, you know, it's, it's very... Um, much uh one foot in front of another don't fall down and and you get and you get there and right in jazz uh it's okay to get old you know the older you get the better you get so some, uh -huh. some of my favorite jazz guys uh you know when they recorded they're 70 years old they sound great you can you can age well in jazz exactly and how old are you I'm going to be 70. Yeah, and your voice is is spectacular. Thank I you. I mean, it holds up. Yep. How do you like? I listen to these newer records, and I'm like, this guy's kind of an old guy, right? Yeah. And he, and the voice is still intact. Oh, well, I guess you didn't beat the shit out of yourself. Either. I'm no, I didn't, and I'm not screaming. And yeah. I lived a pretty good life. I mean, actually, uh, I was such a fan, man, just to get to hang with the guys I hung with and play. You know, I just had a ball. I've had a good time. Well, let's go through it. I mean, you, you're you're a Jewish fella. I, it turns out I am, yeah. And as am I. And it seems like, you, you know, you're arcing into more Jewiness as you get older. You know, it's bizarre. The, I, I spent my life avoiding the two things. One, uh, boxes of CDs in my basement. Uh -huh. And second, the, the Jews, the yeah. organized Jews. Only <laughs> to wind up with boxes of Jewish CDs in my basement. Right. <laughs> Swear to God. Uh, so long, long story short, I made a, a CD about 20 some years ago called Life's a Lesson. And it's Hebrew liturgical music. Uh, with uh, 25 just fantastic Jewish jazz musicians. That was how long ago did you make that? 93. 
Okay, I have that. I listen to it. Yeah. I know those songs. Sure, I grew you know. Up with them. Well, that's the point. See, yeah. Ose Shalom, Avinu yeah. Malkana. We yeah. all had them in our ears. Sure. And so at some point, when my son mm-hmm. uh, was uh, maybe six years old, mm-hmm. I thought, man, he's got what's you know, I, I don't have anything Jewish around here. Let's let's just introduce him to something. <laughs> we better get some Jew let's in get him. Get some Jew in him. <laughs> uh, so I started doing these high holiday services, uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, not yeah. for any other reason than I found a really cool place to hang out. Uh, you do a musical, you mean? You get on the yeah, piano? Yeah, I play and piano, and uh, doors are open, and you don't have to buy a ticket, right. and the rabbi is this uh, left-wing progressive woman, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's a thing in Madison, sure. Wisconsin. It's yeah. the home of the alternative. Right. So I started doing the music, and yeah. one thing led to another, and eventually I just said, man, I bet there's a lot of people out there have these tunes in their ears, yeah. and maybe we should record them. So I'm going around the country with reels of tape on. I mean, we're talking today's like 40 pounds of two-inch tape under yeah, my yeah. arms. And I'm working, and wherever I'm working, uh, I book an extra session in the studio, and I call in uh, Jewish guys. Yeah. And I say, I've got you down for a Vino Malcano. Yeah. You, you're the soloist on Osatial, whatever it is. Yeah. And every one of these guys, from Randy Brecker to Lee Conan, it didn't matter who, said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm Jewish, but I'm not. Uh, sure, you know, sure. And I, yeah. I said, listen, man, come on down, yeah. play on the thing. Yeah. If you don't like it, we won't use it. Yeah. Every one of them left the studio with a cassette for their mother. I swear to God. Oh, they finally did something. They did it. Look, Ma, Look. I'm not a, I'm not a, I didn't waste my life. Right. So I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, uh, so that's how I got into the Jew thing. And, uh, but when been, you started, I mean, you know, I mean, where'd you grow up? Racine, Wisconsin. Wait, and now what is it? What is that? You, because how far away is that from Chicago? It, well, my father commuted to Chicago. He worked in Chicago. And were so, your, your, your parents from, uh, my both fa- from here? My father was born in Poland, came to the right. United States at age four or five, right. grew up in Chicago. My mm-hmm. mom was from Racine, and we wound up in Racine because when my father went into the army, the family moved there. Right. Uh, so Racine, very few Jews. Yeah. Very few Jews. My high school, there were two Jews. One was my sister. <laughs> It's <laughs> the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I never dated a Jewish yeah. girl. I, you mm-hmm. know, I was, I kept my head down. Yeah, like, that yeah, was yeah. the basic <laughs> mo. But, but you didn't feel? Did you feel? Well, uh, no, no uh, anti-Semitism necessarily. I mean, yeah, yeah, a little hey, bit. Hey, Jew boy. Yeah. Hey, well, Jew things. Boy. Well, we were. I mean, I guess at that time it was a little unique. Uh, you know, certainly yeah. for certain areas. And I don't know what the the story is in terms of. I know that uh, Minnesota had yeah. a large Jewish community at some point for some reason. And, oh, absolutely. And, and uh, Dylan came from that, and they like they moved out there for I guess import export business. I don't know what. Right. Well, I I think I my family got to Racine because they got off the train at the wrong stop. I, I swear. <laughs> Where were they supposed to be going? I, you know, Milwaukee, Chicago. I don't know. My yeah. grandmother told me a story which was interesting. She um, lived in North Dakota for a while. Yeah. They were homesteading. Uh-huh. You know, the government said, you right. Can, right, if you can till this land. Right, and mm-hmm. they couldn't. They got blown off of it. She, right. talks, she talks about the wind coming through the, the floorboards. She and, come from Russia? I think uh, they were both kind of, my father came from Poland. She uh-huh. must have come from the Palo Settlement but they were, But they were doing uh, the farming thing, Absolutely. right? Because they, were, they didn't know what the hell to do with that land. They didn't it was know, impossible. It was impossible. Right. And uh, so they were, so in any case, uh, yeah. in the Midwest, there are plenty of Jews, and not all of them closeted, yeah. many of them very Jewish. Yeah. Uh, Dylan talks about being up in Hibbing. Yeah. 
And the experience that Dylan had, I mean, he's a year older than I am, but it's pretty similar. Not a lot of Jews, uh, kind of alienation. Yeah. But uh, it was not a bad thing in the sense that it totally turned me to jazz. When I was like in high school, yeah. if I opened a book right. and either the word Jew or the word jazz was on the page, yeah. my eye went right to it. It was <laughs> Jays. Jays. It was bizarre. It was bizarre. And I did happen to notice I never saw him on the same page. Uh-huh. So. The Jew jazz thing has always been curious to me. So when did you start getting into it? I mean, when when you set out, when you were, how old were you when you started doing the music? Well, you know, I played. Uh, I don't have a memory that goes back before I played piano. So I was playing piano at five or six and fooling around. And Is that what you was that your mom saying? Like, tell, teach your kid, give him a give him piano lessons. Well, or? my older sister had a piano lesson, so I did. I followed her, and then she quit, and I kept going. Then I quit. But my father was a big music fan, mm-hmm. uh, big jazz fan. So I just listened to his boogie woogie records. You yeah, know? like who would that be? Oh, Pine Top, Smith, Albert Ammons, you know, Chicago boogie woogie guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I started imitating it. Right. And eventually uh, I got a nice teacher in Milwaukee. I would commute back and forth and I picked it up. And then I was like 13 or 14, I got a gig. Somebody paid me three bucks to go play to dance. So I mean, were you doing popular music? I mean, dance music. I mean, what? I mean, smoke what? it's in your eyes. Oh, you right. know, okay. the yeah, boys yeah, yeah. and girls. Sure, sure. sure. You Ballroom. Could, you could lay out all that stuff. Well, it was great because yeah. I was on the stage watching these people be intimate, and I thought, man, this is just a fabulous position. Magic. It's magic, man. And then they gave you three bucks. I mean, come on. That's... Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing about music that it's magic, and it's a repeatable magic. Yeah, that that's always fascinated me because you know I'm a comedian. You know, a joke is a joke. Yeah. You can retell a joke, but a joke's going to wear out. Yeah, I mean, it'll hold, huh. it'll hold some juice. Yeah, and if someone's a good teller of a joke that everybody knows, you kind of want to hear it again. But really, with a song, I mean, if you engage with that thing with a piece of music, you've got it's magic every time. Well, it's it's channeling this particular spirit. Every song, if it's a decent song, has got some kind of underlying spirit to yeah, it, you know. Yeah. And you just kind of go back to that place and 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 try to you know tap into what that is. Now, okay, so when you started, you know, you know that boogie woogie thing was already old news, really, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It was just something you gravitated towards. What was the jazz of the time when you started to integrate yourself into the community? I mean, what was happening? Was that bebop already or yeah. post bebop? Yeah, yeah. I, I was born in '43, so let's say when I'm 13 years old, it's 50 56, you're two years away from Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. I'm listening to Horace Silver, Art Blakey. I'm yeah. listening to, uh, well, Ray Charles, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, th- definitely it's bebop, it's Miles, it's it's all this stuff. And but, did, when you started, was there, did you start in, in rock music? I mean, what was the, you know, what was your evolution as a musician? No, man, I, the only rock music I liked was Ray Charles, if that was rock music, right. you know? Right. Uh, I was not a big uh, Jerry Lee Lewis fan, although ironically, years later when I got in the record business, everybody wanted you to imitate Jerry mm-hmm. Lee Lewis. I, I was a jazz guy, a bebop guy. I love Bud Powell. These are sophisticated cats, man. And, uh, you know, being a, a Jew, yeah. I, I, I'm drawn toward the intellectual side of things. Yeah. And and bebop is almost a literary form of jazz improvisation. I mean, there's themes and sub-themes and paragraphs yeah, and I want comments. You, I, it's Talmudic, get, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're going to have to explain it. I want to break it down so I can have a deeper appreciation of it. But you never you never get, you never never did the high school rock band or you never you played there rock There weren't band. high school rock bands. No. I mean, uh-huh. I guess, it, right, because no, you're, you're, you're 19. I was there. I, I was there when uh, middle-class white kids realized they could do it. And what happened was this. I, I, so I go to the university. Well, basically, I'm uh, 17 years old. I'm escaping Racine. I get to Madison, Wisconsin. I'm playing uh, on the weekends with a fraternity band, and we're playing jazz. Back then, uh, fraternity music was... Uh, 
what do they call it? Like New Orleans jazz, sure. good time party music. Right, yeah. right, right. Like what? Uh, Professor Longhair? Oh, t- we should be so lucky. No, no. like uh, <laughs> the original Dixieland uh, jazz oh, band oh, oh, right. imitators, okay. sure, you know? Sure, sure, sure. No, Professor, my God. Nah. Uh, so... Uh, I, I, by coincidence, yeah. uh, my sophomore year, uh, I'm riding my uh, Vespa motor scooter up to up to class, and I see a, a little band off to the side. I pull over yeah. and I go up and say, "You know, well, you guys sound great. What's the deal?" It's Steve Miller, Boz Skaggs. They're playing Jimmy Reed tunes. Uh, they don't have a keyboard player, so so Boz is is singing. Is play, playing guitar. He's playing bass at this point. Okay, and, and Steve's playing. Uh, he's playing guitar and. They got another guy, a guy named Denny Berg, playing guitar and singing as good as either one of them. Like you uh, never heard of him, take right? Take out some insurance, that kind of those. Yeah, absolutely, that, Fannie Mae, yeah. Oh Charlena, yeah, yeah. Who do you love? Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're doing all that blues groove. Yeah, and I had never heard that before. Really? How was that possible? Racine, Wisconsin, man. You were lucky to hear anything. So you never heard that, you, you, but you heard Boogie Woogie because your pop's records, right? But yet you you've been sort of iced out of the uh, of what was becoming the the classic blues structure, the popular blues, blues music. Oh yeah, except uh, to the extent it showed up on an Art Blakey record or it showed up on a Ray Charles thing. But you're but you're already adept at you know what that stuff is built on top of. So, right. Okay. So you get in with these guys. So I get in with these guys, and I learn right away that it's not, you know jazz guys tend to think it's easy. It's not easy. It's mm-hmm. about it's about commitment. It's mm-hmm. about commitment to the groove. It's mm-hmm. about surrender. You know, to commitment make... to the groove. Absolutely. That's what you, you tell me. Jazz guys don't necessarily understand that. No, I don't mean that. I mean that jazz guys tend uh, to belittle the funk groove or the back, uh, right. backbeat groove, or they did at that time. Yeah. I mean, now we're talking, you know, 1961, so, so bebop's already way in, and you know, Miles, people are taking train, it further. Bing, yeah. bing, bing. Yeah. But when I was saying I was there, I was there when the Beatles showed up. Man, I was working in a record store. And, you know, the biggest selling record at that time uh, might have been uh, Blown in the Wind, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Dylan thing came 67? out. 67, where are we at? No, Earlier, 62, 63. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. You know, it's coming on. There is no white middle class rock and roll. Right. The garage bands I don't think existed because we're still talking about professional songwriters, Paul Anka, we're talking about uh, right. early versions of Motown, whatever, I don't mm-hmm. know. But when the Beatles showed up, it was a revelation, man. I saw it on Steve Miller's face. Yeah. When, I mean... You mean we can write our own songs? Oh, yeah. So Okay, so you took up with these guys, and that's what, 60 what? Two, three, 63. All right, so, so you're playing with them. Right. And you're doing blues covers. Doing blues covers. Playing out? You got a drummer? Oh, we, oh we got a drummer. We're playing out. We're playing five gigs a week. What's we're, the name of the band? The Fabulous Ardells. Yeah. And we're making money. I mean, we're making more money. I mean, back then, I would make uh, 50 bucks as a sideman on, on a college gig. You play four gigs on a weekend. You, you 200 bucks, that's a lot of money back then. But with your background, I mean, you get you guys must have been really nailing it. I mean, with a, with yeah, if you got a solid boogie-woogie thing and you're laying it into that those tunes, it must have been, you must have been holding that thing together. The band was killing it. <laughs> yeah. The band yeah, yeah, was yeah, really yeah. killing it. There's actually a tape on my website of... Uh, of a rehearsal from 1962 or 63 with those guys. Can, you can hear just how good the band was and how good those guys sang, man. I mean, Steve Boz Miller, Steve. I mean, both of them made, you know, huge careers, you know, out of, you know, really blues-based music in Absolutely. a way. Absolutely. I mean, Steve Miller, certainly. I mean, I often wonder what the hell that guy's up to. I mean, he's a he's around still. Oh, he's, yeah. he's he's playing the five or six hits that he got in the 70s. Big hits. Around the world, yeah, man. It turns out that... Uh, 
a song like The Joker is an industry. Mm-hmm. A song like Fly Like an Eagle is a business. Isn't that interesting about music publishing? Yeah. It's fucking, yeah, the, the number of ways you can make money in that racket is profound. There used to be, I mean, really well, amazing. Well, the, the, the best way to get paid is to own the copyright. Right. That's the bottom line. The record companies will cheat you, but the to federal the publishing, gov- right? Publishing, right. Mm, that's the ticket. All right, so you and Steve. The Beatles, we hear the Beatles, we're hanging out. One thing leads to another. Now, the, everything is changing. Yeah. Now, everybody's smoking dope. Now, yeah. the anti-war thing is bubbling up. Yeah. Now, uh, the uh, Chicago blues scene uh, with uh, Mike Bloomfield and these guys starts taking off. Steve goes to Chicago. Butterfield, Butterfield and Bishop. Right, and yeah. right. We go to Chicago. We're hanging out at a That club. generation. The guys right. who learned right. at the, the, the lap of those dudes playing That's with those it. guys. Yeah. That's it. And they start, you know, they start to record. Mm-hmm. So Steve drops out of college. He goes there. Now, eventually he makes his way to San Francisco. It's 1967. And at this point, being a good Jewish intellectual, yeah, I'm on my way to graduate school in England to maintain a 2S student deferment so I don't go to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm there at the Sussex University in Brighton uh, studying with... Uh, Oh man, do you remember Leslie Fiedler, this literary critic? Maybe not. But he, he wrote, I know the name. I know yeah. the name. Yeah. So he got thrown out of uh, SUNY Buffalo for uh, providing marijuana to some kids. Mm-hmm. So he washed up over. So it was a nice hang. Yeah. Stephen Boz came over there to make the first Steve Miller Band record. They hooked up, and I went and made the record with him. Uh-huh. And so suddenly, 1967, we're all in the record business. Yeah, they're really in the record business. Yeah. What was on that record? That wasn't the big hits, but it, that was no, the... no. It was called Children of the Future. Uh-huh. It was psychedelic. The oh, cover yeah. was psychedelic. Everything yeah. was psychedelic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and why do you record it in England? That that was where the label was, or uh, they wanted to record with this guy Glenn Johns, yeah. the producer. He had produced the well, he had engineered the Sto- uh, the Stones and the Beatles, and you know England at that time was where where that shit was happening. Pop music, man, they were selling. So he, so Steve Miller dropped out of college when he realized the Beatles had broke open something. He could do this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're there. You, you sit on, on that record. You're in the record business. I'm in the record business. They go back to San Francisco. I'm there three more years writing a dissertation on, on what? This, uh, the social history, black music. Uh, it was called Black Talk. It got published, uh, but it's the sociology of black music in America as an oral tradition versus a literary tradition. I took some of Marshall McLuhan's ideas. I transformed it to, well, you know, uh, it's it's not that uh, Thelonious Monk can't play like Vladimir Horowitz. Horowitz can't play like Monk. Let's talk about that. Right. So Interesting. I, I was going to teach, and I graduated in 1971. There were no teaching positions. Everybody had been in graduate school to avoid going to Vietnam. There's plenty of teachers around. Too many teachers. But what, what do you think about in your in your heart the the decision to to insulate yourself like that? That like you know obviously you didn't have the wherewithal to do what Steve and Boz did and say fuck it. Uh, right. What what do you think was that? What was that about? Uh, I think it's a couple of things. I think number one. Uh, I didn't credit rock and roll that much. I thought it was a bunch of guys playing guitar who had some talent, but you know, was it going to stick? I was well. I was into black music. Well, it's true. I did tell Steve at one time. He told me to come out to San Francisco and join the band. I said, "No, man, I'm going to go to graduate school, and make something of myself." Yeah. I did. I actually said that to him. Uh, but not just that. I mean, yeah. there's there's something 
quite honestly, a little over theatrical and a little cheap about the whole rock and roll business. Yeah. I mean, okay. So the integrity, been. it lacked some integrity inch, for you at that time. Inch deep, a mile wide, man. Yeah, and yeah. I was into the truth, whatever that might have been. <laughs> yeah. Right? Pursuit of the truth, per- man. That's where I was Commitment at. to the groove. That's surrender. Yeah. Surrender. surrender. Yeah. Groove slaves, yeah, I used to yeah. say. Uh-huh. So when then so what where what where did your career take you that so you, you didn't get your teaching gig no and and now you you're, you're well educated uh, yes. you know almost unemployed uh, piano player uh, well that's it right and so and a sort of a fledgling jazz scholar right okay so what I decided to do is move to Los Angeles I mean I'd played on these recording sessions I like with a, who well I did a Rolling Stone session you I, did yeah yeah let's yeah. talk about that well it was boring it was six <laughs> hours seven hours were they there. <laughs> Yeah, they were there. We were all lined up in a row in Olympic Studios. Glenn Johns had, had called me and said, man, uh, there's a session. Would you want to Because he come? knew you from the Steve Miller session. Yeah, and yeah. he was in L.A. recording which album? No, this was in, it's still in England. Oh, you're still in England. All right. We're so still in England. What album were we looking at? It was, uh, I guess, right before uh, Beggar's Banquet must have been. I, I, I don't know if it ever appeared on a record. It may have because- You don't know if you're on a Stones record? I'm not credited, certainly. Uh-huh. I'm not credited. You, but never, whether, went, you went, never went to listen? I don't listen to the Stones. <laughs> but I listened to this. This yeah. is true. So uh, Glenn told me, yeah. look, on the way to the studio, I want you to stop and pick up the drummer he doesn't drive. Mm-hmm. So I'm living in Brighton. Charlie yeah. Watts is living in Lewis, which is right up the road. And yeah. we go up to him. So I great. great. Uh-huh. I go to Charlie Watts' house. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a mansion by this point. They sure. made some money. I knock on the door. You know, Charlie opens it. Behind him, there's a fireplace you can walk into. Huge, a roaring yeah. fire. And he's listening to Miles Davis. Yeah. I said to him, Charlie, man, I'm so glad to you know hear you listening yeah. to Miles. Because yeah. I got to be honest with you, man, I don't really listen to the Stones a lot. Yeah. He said, that's all right, mate. Neither do we. <laughs> And all he wanted to do was talk about jazz, and we hung. We had a great hang. We wind up, uh, after a couple hours, driving into the studio, Olympic Studios, and we walk in. There's Mick sitting at the piano, and he's playing this really nice ballad, man. Yeah. And I went up to, how do you do, Mick, Ben, blah, blah, blah. I said, man, that's beautiful. Is that what we're going to work on? He said, no, man, it's just something I'm fooling around with. Next thing you know, we're all lined up in a row. Uh, I'm playing a little Wurlitzer piano, and we're just hammering three chords right. for nine hours. Yeah. There are no lyrics. Yeah. Mick is doing his chicken dance in yeah. front of us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, after about 45 minutes, I'm thinking, uh, is this going somewhere? Are we doing something? What are we doing? Yeah. And that, that was... That was but, it? Well, but that was pretty typical for sessions at that time. I mean, even with the Steve Miller stuff, you know... You'd hear the engineer say on the talk back, okay, guys, lucky number 39. <laughs> you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. the cats couldn't necessarily hold it together. It wasn't right. about music, it was the theater. Right, right. And, and also, it was about. Like uh, I, I guess at the time to, to sort of control the song that there was a there was a sweet spot somewhere. Yeah. I don't ever know what you know when I when I watch uh, films or you know, I've never been in a recording studio, but I talked to Dave Grohl recently, you know, about this process of when you're going to hit that when you're going to yeah. hit that sweet that one take. And yes, what, and and the the weird thing about that is okay, so that's you know it took you forty to do that. When you go out on the road, you're going to have to jam. You're going to have to figure out how to hit that every time. I guess it doesn't matter as much when you're going live. But, well, no, but that's the point. What what works live does not necessarily work in the studio. It doesn't uh, for, matter necessarily. Well, in the studio, small is big. For example, if you want a drum to yeah. sound really big, uh, instead of putting a lot of microphones on it, what you do is you put a mic 10 feet away. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, illusion in the process of, of making a record. Now, once you go out there, people can't hear they, if yeah, the groove shifts yeah. or not. They just want to see the theater. They want to see you, the theater. Which, and that seems to be the big... 
that's the big difference for you is that there seemed to be an artifice to uh, to rock music or to pop music at that time. It was disposable in a way. You know, man, I always assumed, I don't know where I got this idea, it's a totally crazy idea, but I always assumed that in the world there were what I thought of as first degree searchers. Yeah. They could be shoemakers, they could be comics, they yeah. could be historians, they could be, but they would recognize one another when they saw each other and they were obligated to help each other. It was this crazy idea I came up with and it's the path that I'm on, man, and I, I Every time the road forked, yeah, that's the fork I took, and and you you were able to identify that that it was some sort of personal truth you were looking for, and whether or not you, you I'd have to assume that you're not always clear whether it translates, but but the you know the personal truth is what where it's at. How do you know how to make a decision? Somebody books you on the gig. How do you know if you really want to take the gig? I never but, want to take the gig. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but you do take some gigs. You got to. I, I know that instinct is just fear. Okay, that, you, you know, is that you know a lot of of what we do. If you're questing for that, and you know, I work as I get older, I, I improvise more because I want to push it out there, right? You know, and, and challenge myself on stage in front of people. I'm I know, and someone brought it up. This just happened yesterday. That you know, I was on stage in Indiana, Indianapolis, and mm-hmm. I was I was improvising more than I ever had within characters and within you know moments. And and some guy on Twitter said, you know, self-discovery as com- as comedy and that, you know, I never thought about it that way that like I get very tired with the structure you know, of jokes or bits that I've done before always. So there's got to be there's got to be time on stage where I'm moving through something that'll never happen again. And that is, those are the ones I'm going to remember. That's what I walk away with. It's gone. You know, whoever was there got it. I got it. Whatever happened to me inside is what what happened. But it, but it, that was it. That moment of self-discovery is what makes it all worth it. That's jazz. That's exactly what jazz is. And so in jazz, you can spend eight hours a day blowing through a copper tube, right? And I promise you, after 10 years, that tube will not change, but you will be totally transformed. We're transforming ourselves here, right. and you can't do it if you're not in public. And if you if you can't make your mistakes in front of people, there, it doesn't matter. You, so what? You can't make a mistake alone. And if you're sitting there with with friends, you you, you got to go out and hang it out. Well, that's interesting, is because that that type of you know the that that's getting lost in the culture we live in now across the board that you know there's an expectation of quality content to be provided at all times and you know if you do let it hang out and it doesn't go well you've got an entire culture of people that are going to be ah he didn't it didn't you know he let it hang out and he's an asshole it didn't work and now that's up there being misinterpreted here we are as human beings looking for personal truths willing to make mistakes in public and and fight the good fight and you got a bunch of assholes who are going to be like no you didn't quite do it did you it's like well that's part of the thing we we are, we're at risk at losing what is organically human in the creative process well that's the same thing in in, in the music business uh especially as you got further and further into the di- digital technology it was possible to fix it you know just because it's possible to make something perfect doesn't mean it's a good idea yeah, what is perfect what is right? perfect right perfect is just your pathetic attempt to hide <laughs> in, in the technology right <laughs> oh i made a mistake but the stuff that we love is for me, and I bet it's the same in comedy. It's not so much avoiding the 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 mistakes, but how you recover from mistakes. Like if you're in public and you do something and you didn't intend to do it, and in the first thought in your mind is shit, what did I just do? If you're if you can train yourself to say I'm going to make something out of that, mm-hmm. in that recovery there's transcendence, and people have a sense that something magic has just happened. It's in the recovery. It's not in being perfect. It's in letting it all come through and using it. Right. 
But that, I mean, I love it. I mean, I, I agree with you. And I never thought about it like that, that like every moment of, of misstep is an opportunity exactly, to, to transcend without, that with, moment. And it could happen in 30 seconds, 15 yes. seconds. Without the possibility of failure, there's no possibility of success. That's absolutely a watchword, man. You have to put yourself at risk. And, and success is relative to, to your experience. Right. It's not necessarily how you're being judged. Nothing to do with it. Yeah, well, that, that separation's a little tricky. Bad, well, bad <laughs> reviews are still hurt. Yeah. They do. Bad reviews still hurt. I got one recently. I've had all these good reviews. I got this new CD out called uh, Don't Cry for No Hipster. Yeah, I read. I listened to it. It's getting good reviews, man. Yeah, People okay. are digging it. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, lot, it's a lot of my stuff doesn't get a lot of good reviews. So I'm, I'm digging it, right? And then I got a bad one. Yeah. Now, I've been in this 40-some years. Yeah. And yet I read it. I said, shit, what, what, what was he listening to? You, you never get too old you never outgrow your need for mother's milk you yeah, know sure and uh, but also the thing that you forget in that moment it's just some asshole it's just some guy who's probably trying to cut his own teeth on being a dick to establish his own voice as a critic and you know and, and you and somehow in our brains the, the creative mind thinks like well nobody likes me that's in that moment yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought about that the other day i thought man why is it that you want everybody to love you yeah, man? yeah. well because yeah same thing mother's milk yeah yeah <laughs> you know we you know no matter how much you fight that like i don't care yeah, yeah. you care you always yeah. care yeah so all right so you do this session but uh, getting back to charlie i mean charlie's interesting because you know he actually did some swing he tried to you know he did some big oh, band absolutely. records i mean swing the early yeah. swing yeah uh drummers that the, the that's Charlie's uh, thing. And Charlie's, you know, a master of deception on the stage with the Stones. Yeah. For, for, for one thing, he plays very softly. Uh -huh. When you hear him, he's smashing it, right? Right. Those are microphones, man. Oh, really? Charlie's not hitting that hard. Oh, really? No, he's not. Uh -huh. And, and uh, he's got a really interesting way where he lifts uh, the stick off uh, the hi-hat so that the backbeat stands out. On t I mean, he's developed this little thing that's a signature sound. Uh -huh. He's got really good time. Uh -huh. And he's very even as a person, man. In the middle of a, of a storm, yeah. in the midst of chaos, yeah. Charlie's cool. Yeah, he seems that way. Yeah. I like that he didn't drive. Yeah, he doesn't drive. He, he still doesn't drive? I'm I don't wondering. know. Yeah. <laughs> so what were some of the other sessions you were involved with before you started making your own records? Oh, well, by the time I moved to L.A. So I moved to L.A. and... Uh, you know, I started knocking on doors. I was yeah. trying to get a record deal. That's what I thought. And I was you, at do. this time, you still are you still friends with Steve and Boz? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. To no. this day or no? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, we've kept it up. Uh, Boz more than Steve. Steve's really uh, in the rock world. And yeah. I, I just don't resonate, man. So yeah. we don't have a lot to yeah. talk about. But Boz, yeah, Boz is into good wine and jazz and, mm -hmm. and stuff, and we we still hang. He had some big hits, man. He had huge hits. Yeah. You know, you forget what that is. What a song what was like it? Lowdown the, is. Yeah, lowdown and the Lido Shuffle. Le these are these are corporations. Each yeah. one of these songs yeah, is yeah, an yeah. industry. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I come to L.A. Yeah. I, I figure I'm going to get a record deal because I've been on these Steve Miller records. I've done these sessions. Blah blah blah. First thing I learn is don't say anything about uh, graduate school. Mm. We're not. That's not what we're selling here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm knocking on doors. Nobody's yeah. taking my call. Yeah. Six months goes by. This is a true story. One day, so, oh, I'm sharing a house in uh, the Hollywood Hills at this point with Glenn Johns, who was the producer. From England, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I was living here and he was coming back and forth, yeah. so yeah. he had a bedroom. So one day he says, look, I got to go over to Capitol Records. Why don't you come with me? We'll go and hang out at the pool yeah. hall. Yeah. We used to go shoot pool. Sure. So uh, I go there with him. He says, look, I just got to stop upstairs for a quick minute. Come on. We wind up in the office of a guy named Artie Mogul. Uh -huh. Artie Mogul, famous guy for going through record companies and being very creative, but uh, being very generous to himself also. 
so Artie Mogul, somebody I've been trying to get on the phone for six months, won't take my call. But I walk in with Glenn. Oh, how you doing? Nice to meet yeah. you. Blah, blah, blah. I say, listen, I'm on my way out to lunch. You guys want to come? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So Glenn and I go with Artie Mogul down to the Brown Derby, the old Brown Derby. Sure. We walk in. We're meeting his friend, Albert Grossman, who at the time was Dylan's manager. Man, yeah, yeah. So here's Artie He's Mogul. He's a badass, right? Oh, man. Yeah. This is a real gangster. Yeah. So, and Artie Mogul was his, his right-hand guy. So yeah. between the two of them, uh, we, we've got uh, Al Capone yeah. and uh, Arnie Rothstein. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we sit down, and Artie Mogul says, you know, Albert, there's only one girl I want to fuck anymore. Yeah. And Albert says, well, who's that, Artie? Artie says, the Queen of England. Albert says, Queen of England? She's a dog. Why do you want to fuck the Queen of England? Artie says, because I want to hear the Queen of England say, give it to me, Artie, give it to me. <laughs> And I went, oh, my God, we are not in Kansas. <laughs> or, or Racine. Or Racine. Yeah. Two days later, he yeah. took my call. Yeah. Six weeks later, I had a record deal. Six weeks after that, he had left the company. He threw me a bone on his way out the door. And he knew it. And he knew it. And he did it just because I was there and I had lunch. That's sweet. And that, that's an L.A. story. And man. that was, it, and that was the, the first record. That was my first record, 1971. And now, were you still working as a session guy? Did you do sessions? I was trying, man. I, I, I did song demos. I did a James Taylor demo. I did a bunch of demos by people. What does a demo heard. mean? Uh, the publisher uh, buys studio time. An artist goes in there and lays down some tunes, not for their own record, but uh, so that the publisher can get some uh, somebody else to cover the tune. Oh, I see. And and who are some of the other guys you work with? You work with James Taylor. Well, I mean, I didn't work with them. I just yeah, showed up yeah, and yeah, played yeah, on the yeah, demos. Sure. I mean, uh, I spent, when I was in L.A., a bunch of time with this lunatic named Jesse Ed Davis. He uh -huh. was very famous at the time. He worked with Taj Mahal. Great rock and roll guitar player. Yeah. Really inspired. Uh-huh. Uh, I wound up with him uh, going on the road. I, I was in a. It ended when uh, we were in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, the band had dropped acid. Yeah. Uh, I remember in the middle of the night, somebody banging on the door next to me, saying, "Come on, man, just give me my clothes." Yeah. You know, I mean, it was. <laughs> I decided I can't do this. Right? Yeah. And you were never a drug dude. I wasn't a, a hallucinogenic drug. Dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. a bebopper, man. I like a little smoke, yeah, uh, you yeah, know, a little yeah, taste. Yeah. Everything's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they, they be, so, okay, so 1971 is the first record, and yeah. that's a bebop record. Not really. What it was, was I had said to Artie, I said, uh, listen, uh, I like jazz, I like blues, I like funk, and I'm not really a singer, so I'm going to have my pals, Boz and Steve and all these guys, they're yeah. going to sing it. He said, no, man. He said, we're uh, doing uh, singer-songwriters here. Yeah. And if you're not a singer, why, uh, I don't think we can... I said, well, of course, I can sing. Right. I never sang in my life, I swear <laughs> to God. Yeah. First time I saw a microphone in my face was an $8,000 Neumann in Capital Studio A, you know, the famous Frank Sinatra studio. Yeah. So I was faking it. I was really, really faking it. And my instincts were toward jazz. So mm -hmm. I had jazz guys on. I mean, Charlie Watts played on the record. Uh, Boz played on the record. But at the same time, uh, Blue Mitchell, this great trumpet player who used to work with Horace Silver and Ray mm -hmm. Charles, he was on the record. So it was kind of a mix between jazz and pop. And, did you know these guys or was it intimidating? I mean, did you feel like you had a relationship with these guys? You were one of them and you weren't intimidated? Or? I, I, I tell you, man, that's a, that's a beautiful question because, uh, of course, I knew a lot of the guys. Uh, Jimmy Keltner, the drummer here, uh, great drummer. He's he a big drummer. It. He was yeah. part of the Ventura crew, wasn't he? Wasn't yeah. he part of that? Yeah. Yeah, and th that was part of uh, Jesse Davis' crew. I mean, there were a lot of those guys that I felt comfortable with. Yeah. But this guy, Blue Mitchell. Yeah. You know, when I was uh, 13 years old in Racine, Wisconsin, yeah. I had this Horace Silver record. Yeah. And uh, Blue was, was on it. And yeah. this was like I had two records at the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I would sit next to my little record player, 
uh, like uh, an Eskimo around a fire. Yeah. You know, listening and listening and li- to this one record. That's uh-huh. all I had. Until the point where I, th- one, I got totally nuts and I thought I could understand it, whatever that meant. Uh-huh. And the second thing was I thought I was related to these cats. Yeah. I just had this feeling <laughs> that these guys were my cousins or yeah. something yeah. weird. And so, and when I found out they were black, I figured, well, that's you know, black, white, doesn't matter, man. Yeah. We're all he- he- So anyway, the first call I made when I got the record deal was to try to find Blue Mitchell. Right. I figured it was my last record. Yeah. If I'm going to make one record, I'm going down with Blue Mitchell. Right. I, I find him in, in Hawaii playing with Ray Charles. Yeah. I say, Blue, you don't know me. I got a record deal. I wonder if he said, baby boy. Yeah. Baby boy, I wish more people would call me. I'd be <laughs> delighted. And he came and he played <laughs> on it and it... it, it it, this is really revelatory because he came. Now I'm totally beside myself. How I old are you at that point? Seventy one. Twenty eight. Okay. So you're a kid. I'm a kid. Yeah. I didn't. You know, I was yeah. just dancing as fast as yeah. I could. So I made my uh, chord chart up for him and everything. We're going over, and I'm nervous. And it's Blue Mitchell, Horace yeah. Silver. This is the top of the hill, man. As far as I'm concerned, he gets the horn out. Have a little taste, man. Yeah. Go in the studio. Put yeah. the earphones on. Nothing's happening, man. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of fluffing around on yeah. his horn. He's yeah. blowing the spit out of it. I yeah. plane it again. I yeah. mean, something's wrong. Man. Yeah. So like 15 minutes into it, I go out into the studio. I say, Blue, I got to apologize. I'm sure my chart's terrible. I, are you ready? He said, no, you keep doing it. About a half hour into it, suddenly he starts playing like the voice of God. Yeah. <laughs> and I realize he can't read. He's uh, just sitting there listening to it over and over until he's got it. Yeah. And I went out, man, everyone was over. I said, man, how did you do all those great Horace Silver records, man? Yeah. He said, well, you know, we played them live for a long time before we recorded them. So that's how he got it. So he couldn't read the charts. So this whole idea of But he mistakes, wouldn't cop to it. No, because this is, you know, the, the he was of this tradition, this yeah. oral tradition. Yeah. Which is just, you, you pick it up. You ear it. Yeah. You you, uh, you surrender to the groove. You surrender to it. You become it. Right. You let it speak through you. Mm-hmm. So why the choice then, like, you know, con- okay, so outside of the singer-songwriter thing, I mean, your love for bebop and the, and the context it provides is so deep, you know, you just felt like in that in that first record, you got it played by whatever the, they were offering you within that. Well, I didn't really know what a record was. I didn't right. know who I was. I didn't know nothing. I mean, I'm just uh, trying to get in line and, and play this game, whatever this is. So as as things went on, I mean, because it seems that, like, I, I couldn't listen to all 40 records. Yeah. But, you know, your sound is a pretty smooth sound. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there there there's not, I didn't feel that, and maybe on some of the other records, I don't know, that it was, you know, sort of straight up bebop exploration where you're going to, you know, kind of ride that stuff out. Yeah. Did you do some of that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I made a live record once uh, in Montreux, Switzerland, with uh, the Brecker brothers and a bunch of cats, and mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty straight up. I made another record called Bop City that was dedicated to this, but I'm always writing lyrics. You know, writing is something I've always been drawn to, and so there are always some kind of lyrics on it, and I... You know, I sing like a piano player. I'm yeah. not a singer. I sing like, um, you know, Fats Waller wasn't a right. singer. Right. It's a tradition. It's a jazz tradition. I well, pick- maybe I'm confusing something. Maybe I'm confusing, like, because, you know, bebop is, you know, there, there's a groove to it and there's closure to it. But, you know, people like Miles or people like Coltrane or people like, you know, you know, uh, you know some of the other warriors yeah. who, would, who would take it to a place where everything was about to break apart. Yeah, yeah, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, Blow, you know, yeah, blowing the form up. Yeah, yeah, and, and that you know, I sort of misidentify that you know because that's that a very is, specific thing. That is not bebop. Bebop is what led to that. Bebop is a grammar. 
It's a grammar. So, and yeah, it, so that was my misunderstanding. So you well, did do bebop, really? Be, I, 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 my whole life, have always wanted to speak that language. Right. That's what it was. And it's a grammar. And you learn it. Uh, uh, and then the, the, the goal is to get your own voice. I well, mean, what is that? Okay, so let's talk about that grammar. You're, you're coming out of uh, the boogie-woogie piano. You know, there, you know, there's a whole history behind bebop. So what, what separates, you know, what's the drop-off you know, from the big band to the smaller combo to, you know, yeah. what is the, what's the first bebop record? First bebop record, tough to say, but certainly the you know everybody points to the early uh, Charlie Parker records, you know from the 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 forties uh, Dizzy Gillespie stuff. Right. By then the vocabulary, the idiom had matured to the point. Um, there's an apocryphal story of Charlie Parker in a chili joint back in the forties, where he said he made this breakthrough, the harmonic breakthrough. Basically, I mean, if we had a keyboard here, I could show you what I'm talking about. But it's the upper intervals of a yeah. chord. Uh, Briefly, uh, a major chord is the first, the third, the fifth, yeah. and if you're playing blues, the seventh. Right. But in jazz, we go to the ninth, we go to the eleventh, the flat five, the thirteen, and yeah. these upper intervals are what makes jazz feel so exotic. And there's also chord substitutions. So uh -huh. instead of playing uh, a B flat chord, you might play uh, a C minor chord to an F chord, or you might play a G flat to a B and then down to B flat. You've got all this... Um, Indirection that's considered eloquent in the moving towards yeah, yeah yeah resolution right and so the journey becomes very important right. you know the elegance of your personal journey you know people yeah man you hear what he said he yeah. just said this but I never heard anybody say that so that's what he contributed right, but he you know he's got this the, he's that, got that chord, move this chord this chord and then like boom what was boom, that what then, was that yeah whoa yeah so now this is the bebop idiom but when yeah. you get somebody like uh, train let's say as a classic example or Ornette certainly. When you take the form of this stuff and you keep progressing, ultimately what happens is the keyboard, 88 keys, turns into one chord. Mm -hmm. That's like one, and then you start thinking in terms of sound yeah. rather than uh, chords. And once you're doing that, you're not in bebop anymore. Bebop is this idiom where the rhythm, the swing, propels the exploration, uh, which still is true with train, mm -hmm. but... The exploration is within the idiom. Okay, it's a grammar. It's like we got verbs and, and right. nouns and stuff. Bebop's got got a grammar. And also, bebop was defined by the the intimacy of the Small of the groups. combo. Right. Small right. groups, exactly. Piano, uh, horn, uh, drum, and, and bass, and that's it. That's your basic bebop quartet. And that's when that started happening. Then you're sort of re-entering a world. Of, of what you were talking about with just a boogie-woogie piano player. You know, you're coming out of big band, which I had to assume it had to have something to do with economics. So you got all these players in big bands, which was the popular music, but I can't imagine what it must have been like to move that stuff around. I yeah. mean, that's what people were dancing to. You got to show up with 30 guys yeah. or 17 or however many's in that. Yeah. I mean, on some level, you know, these horn players, they must have been like, well, let's, let's just jam. And now, you know, okay, there's just four of us. We can do this anywhere. Well, and it also goes back even further. If you go back to the original New Orleans stuff in mm -hmm. 1910, 19-whatever, that was relatively small group, too. Small group, uh, mutual uh, improvisation. Everybody's improvising at once. And Nobody, that was like the day of a younger Louis Armstrong and, and Oliver or whatever. Yeah, yeah, King Oliver and, and yeah, Kid Ori and yeah, these yeah. guys. Right. They were improvising on uh, popular songs and blues forms, like ragtime. Yeah. There was a piano form, but originally rag was a verb. You know, you ragged a song. Right. Uh, but right. that's not, like, it seems that bebop's really, you know, into sort of, you know, a, a minory feel, where that stuff felt sort that's of celebratory. That's very hip, man. That's very hip, because when we talked about substitutions a second yeah. ago, those 
substitutions move through minor and major, and they make this exotic thing happen. Yeah. That's called bebop. But the point is that back then, you had small group improvisation. Right, right. Then it got bigger. It got bigger because it got stylized. It became Duke Ellington at the Cotton Club. Yeah. Then, heaven help us, Benny Goodman got those hits, those swing hits. Yeah. Then all the white kids started dancing. Yeah. Oh, my God, we're going to make some money. And then everybody had a big band, and everybody was going to make some money. And then the war came, and cats got drafted, and it was kind of rough during the Depression as well. And by the time the war ended, there was hardly any big bands anymore. Oh, so that was it. So it was a, yeah, so it did have to do with culture and economics yeah. and, and the, you know, sort of the shattering of the national fabric there. Yes. So when the, so were you around then when you know that New York scene was, was sort of you know, happening in the vanguard and that kind of stuff? Well, when I was uh, 17 years old, uh, no, I was 18, the summer of my 18th uh, year, after my freshman year in college, I took a Greyhound bus from Racine, Wisconsin to New York City, got out at Port Authority and walked up to 52nd Street and stood in front of Birdland till it opened. Yeah. About six hours. Yeah. <laughs> and I stood there and I went and I heard Dizzy Gillespie and some cats. And uh, so that was uh, 61. So I got to hear from 61 to let's say mid-70s, a Man. lot of the great cats. I didn't hear Charlie Parker, but I heard Coltrane a lot. I heard Miles. I, I got to hear a, a lot of people. You saw Coltrane? Yeah, yeah, a few times. And was that amazing? Well, we were all so taken, man. I don't know. Uh, I can't separate truth from fiction. In my mind, you mm -hmm. know, it was, uh, it was uh, spiritual. But, you know, he was so burrowed into our consciousness by this. A train was everything, you know, for, for a musician from 63, 4, 5, the music. Uh, it was like the, the Joshua Jericho, man. Yeah, I yeah, mean, you yeah, know, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. I did hear him once at the Half Note in New York, and the, the place was sold out, and there was one seat that yeah. they let me have. Uh, there was an elevated bandstand, and the seat was right below Elvin Jones's bass drum. Uh -huh. So all I heard for two hours, bam! <laughs> I thought it was great, you know? Yeah, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah man. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Now, you, now who were the guys that you spent time with? You, I know because you did a series of conversations with these guys, you know, as a fan and yeah. as a musician. Yeah. But I have to, like, you know, in, in looking at, you know, w what I glean of your career, um, that, you know, I, it seems to me that as, as amazing a musician as you are, that you know the fan thing you know probably never left you right never oh no no i still uh can't believe you know that i got to play with blue mitchell that that was it that was the moment <laughs> that was it man you could have sh shoot me now man yeah shoot me now now when you approach these guys like uh, in conversations like with miles davis because i you know it, when I, I read some of your stuff i mean you definitely you have a uh you know a, a poetic hunger you know, yeah, and I do too. Where where somebody can say something, where you're like, "Oh, that's it," you know, like yeah, you just did it. You know, yeah. what what was what was your your sense of him as a person, and and how did you in get, interact with him? Well, you know, it's interesting because he had this reputation, of course, uh, of attacking uh, white people and all this insanity. It's not true, of course. Uh, fortunately, I had been around music and musicians long enough to know that it's about music yeah and music is about a person's life mm -hmm. you know uh, you can't play bigger than you are as a person mm -hmm. and so if you love somebody's music there's something there that you really want to talk about that isn't music mm -hmm. right so I never talked to cats particularly about music I talked to them about you know I would sit down and say hey, how you doing yeah. I, where were you last night yeah, yeah. sure uh, but Miles, uh, I, I, the few times I've, I was with him, he was very generous, very open. I mean, he cooked lunch for me, and uh, he was nostalgic about the old days. And uh, 
He was really sweet. At the time, he was living uh, with, uh, what's her name in Malibu, the actress. Um, Cicely Tyson? Yeah, he was living with Cicely. Uh-huh. And I said, you know, he, he used to sketch toward the end of his life. And uh-huh. I, I, we were sitting there on, on his, in his place out on Malibu, and he was drawing. I said, man, have you always drawn? What the, how, why did you start drawing? Because he really, you know, put yeah. a lot of time into it. Uh-huh. He said, oh, man, you know. He said, you know how long it takes actresses to get dressed. <laughs> So I started drawing. And he got off on the subject. He said, man, come on. He took me up into the bedroom into Sicily's closet. Yeah. He said, look at what this bitch has got going. I mean, it was funny. He was charming. He was really funny. Yeah. And uh, generally speaking, all the cats I talked to, with some exceptions. Uh, who were they? Like, uh, give me a short list. Of, the exceptions? Well, no, no. Who were the guys you talked to? Oh, uh, Sonny Rollins, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, you know, uh, McCoy Tyner, uh, Herbie Hancock, uh-huh. uh, like Barry Harris. I don't know. You know, hundreds, now, hundreds well, of guys. Well, interesting because my in my limited experience of it, and I can listen to jazz, and I do dig it. You, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I, I get it. You know, I think some people, they, they enter it, and it's sort of, I don't get it. So yeah. I get it, yeah. but I don't. I don't necessarily have the the obsession or the patience to get all of it. Yeah. There's a lot out there. Yeah. And you know, and and one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, once you get outside the prime the prime movers, yeah, you know, you're going to get a lot of similarity and sound. It gets harder and harder to to find your own voice, man. Right. These guys are so powerful that they suck a lot of guys along. I mean, right. that's just the way right. it is. But you you run through that list, and like Herbie Hancock, see, like, yeah. you know, once you get into the, the sort of, you know, softer grooves, yeah. I kind of get a little lost. Yeah, too many notes. <laughs> yeah, something. Which, yeah. which notes would you like me to lose? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. it's too many notes. Yeah. The business in the 70s, the record business, really swamped the music. Uh-huh. The record business took the, the plant. It was like you have jazz, which was this wildflower that grew up by itself through the cracks in the sidewalk, mm-hmm. right? And just pulled it up by the roots. Mm-hmm. And so after that, jazz wasn't captured out in the world. It was manufactured in the studios. And you could just see Miles struggling with this and everybody struggling with this concept. Do you think anybody hit it? Oh, yeah. yeah. People hit it. Herbie hit it with Headhunters, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, no, there were a lot of great jazz records that have been made subsequently. People figured it out, of course. Yeah. And for your own work, I mean, in the 70s, you, you know, you did another few records, right? Yeah, yeah. And did you, how were you evolving? I mean, what, how were you approaching a, a jazz at that time? Well, that's that's really interesting because I, I was searching too for what was it about jazz that I could preserve in the face of this pop music onslaught. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I had to be making records that were sort of poppy because that's who was making records. Yeah, and there really yeah. wasn't an option. Right. Um, and I, I struggle with it. I made some records uh, in the 70s that yeah. people dig, you know, Ben Sidron fans dig them, yeah. but I can hear myself struggling. It wasn't until like 78 when I stumbled on a way to play what's called a halftime shuffle groove with some bebop on top of it that became a signature for me, uh-huh. uh, where I figured out how to get the swing feel of bebop in, with a backbeat so it, it was authentic. So it felt authentic. So you could go play it in the club and get people to start screaming and turn them out. You know, right, that, that's right. really what you're talking about. And, and how you? What was the moment where you hit it? I mean, do you remember it? Yeah, it was, it was a studio here. It was in Sound Lab Studio here in L.A. And uh, it's a drummer. Uh, his 
he's not a known guy. His name is Bill Meeker, and he he started playing this halftime shuffle. Yeah, and I played this little vamp, and I started talking. Yeah, it was the first time I started talking. You see, that's the other thing. I didn't realize that you didn't have to be a pop singer. It took right. me a long time right. to grasp. Yeah, that just because that's what sold yesterday, it doesn't mean that's who you are. Right. I started talking. And I started telling stories on uh -huh. top of this groove, and bingo, there it was. That's and now you're 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 in your mid thirties. You're coming up on forty, and you find your moment. Yeah, I find out what I can do. Uh huh. And and, and you held on to it. You're like, that's it. That's the sound. Well, you're right. I, it takes a little pressure off you as a vocalist. You know, it integrates your your ability to write and just speak your mind yep. uh, into the groove that's laid down. Can go out there and work with bebop players. Everybody's comfortable. I don't have to pretend to play rock and roll. We don't have to play everything really fast and loud. Uh -huh. Right? Do you ever riff with uh, with words? You know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Start doing that. Start yeah. doing that. And at the same time, great jazz soloists like Phil Woods or Bunky Green. These guys are playing behind me. Now we got this thing, but we got a pocket. We got a backbeat halftime yeah. shuffle and uh -huh. you can swing on it. And now uh -huh. I make a series of records that are really kind of pushing the margin. There's a record called The Cat in the Hat, yeah. which was a notorious record when it was made in 1980 because it was all these old classic bebop tunes uh, with the great jazz players, great, uh, I mean, Steve Gadd is the drummer and Abe Laboreal is the bass player, mm -hmm. done. And I wrote lyrics to him and it was like really on the edge of what you could do in terms of the sound of a pop record, but the heart of of a jazz record now in, in when you talk about ben sidron uh, you know fans and, and jazz fans in general i mean this is it, it's it's an insulated culture in a little bit yeah right of course like I, it, because like you know for me to be introduced to you now you know again i'm not a jazz music um right. buyer. you know i i needed an education in the greats you know i went through a period where i listened to some big band i listened to some swing i got the you know the major bebop records i wanted to know because i do dig it and i've gone through periods where i really listened to it but for somebody to pursue it i mean that's a big world i mean when you're yeah. talking about that being a big record for you what does that look like numbers wise Oh, number! I never sold more than thirty thousand records uh -huh. ever. That's the that's the biggest selling. And, and how's that for a jazz record, though? I mean, in generally today, speaking. it's a smash hit. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nobody sells thirty thousand anymore. So where are the people? Where when you go out and you work, you know, where are the you know where are they coming out to see you? Uh, last twenty years, great following in in Spain, great mm -hmm. following in France. I'm a star in France, man. In Japan, I got a good following. Um, Italy, not so much. Uh, what, so what do you make of that? I mean, you know, obviously America is consumed in pop culture. So I understand the fall off here that I understand that, you know, you, you, you're going to have, you know, jazz culture is sort of a nerd culture. They're very specific and, and I'm sure they're very dedicated, but the numbers probably aren't there. But what do you think? about what, why France and why, you know, what is it that makes that different? Well, it's, uh, the, I once got a review in the London Times that said Ben Sidron is the first existential jazz rapper. Uh -huh. The intellectual aspect of what I'm doing. Okay, right. Uh, more sophisticated More audience. sophisticated. I'm still in the tradition. They can relate to the jazz roots of it, and yet I'm telling a contemporary story. And, the, and during the 50s, a lot of those bebop dudes were, you know, France was a haven for them. Paris was, you know, it was happening. Well, exactly, and in part for the same reasons. You know, you see these movies, like uh, the Bird movie and these mm -hmm. movies, and they show jazz guys as basically uh, drug addicts and... Uh, these guys were not that at all. They were they were readers. Charlie Parker read a lot of books. They talked about world things. You know, the idea that jazz is a bunch of primitives just getting lucky playing anything. Strung out on smack. Strung out on smack is a, an American myth, man. It's, it's I think, in part because that's what the white establishment needs to think of, of black artists, mm -hmm. or, or did then anyway. Mm-hmm. 
not so much, I suppose. But, but no, that I mean, the it. stereotype evolves into you know rappers' lives, and that's and, right. And, and, you know, and, and they play it up because mm-hmm. it sells. It sells. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a mischaracterization because even me, you know, I mean, I just read Keith Richards' autobiography, yeah. and here your whole life you think this guy is some strung out moron, and he's a very sophisticated, very cat. sophisticated cat. I exactly. mean, on some level, I mean, if you manage your habit properly, it'll relax you to get some reading done. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like uh, turn down the noise, focus. It's like Alan Arkin's character in Little Miss Sunshine. Remember that? Oh, where, yeah, I love that. I oh, love that character. That's me. That's I, that's where I'm going. Yeah, right. Yeah. But you know, Art Blakey uh, was doing smack in his 80s, and he he had a five year old daughter when he died. Yeah, I mean, the thing about I think that people misunderstand about smack is that you know they're cats that get strung out and they they lose it. But I mean, those do those lifelong habit dudes. You know, they know their dose. They know they know what need they need to get by you know they're not pushing the envelope like they used to you know what i mean it's It's, a sad life but it is what it is it is what it is and everybody's out here just trying to get through it you know i think that smack's interesting especially in jazz and i I think that to really think about it intellectually what that particular high enabled some of these guys to do because i mean you know i i was never a smack guy but i tried it a couple times in my life and there's something about the amount of noise it turns down in your brain that's you know Charlie Parker once said he was asked about this. He said you don't play better on heroin, but you hear better yeah. on heroin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, you know it's like everything gets real close, and it's just right here. It's yeah. a little. It is a, a little bit of a a numbing effect. Yeah, and it, and it sort of push, pushes away the noise. I mean, I think that's why those guys do it if they're not going for the big hit and trying to you know get higher than high. It just sort of like it turns down the noise. It turns down the noise, and it you know it. Uh, Phil Woods, a great, yeah. great alto player and, and a friend, a great friend, and I'm a huge fan of his. Uh-huh. And uh, he, I, boy, he must be in his 80s by now. Uh, but anyway, he can play anything he can, he can hear, which is, you know, there aren't that many people who can actually play what they can hear. And I, went, I once said, man, what, what's it like uh-huh. to be able to play whatever you hear? He said, man, playing's no problem. Uh-huh. He said, the problem is wanting to play. He said, as you get older, it's this desire for desire. You know, you miss that, that desire that you felt when you were young, and you have to find a way to stay in touch with that feeling. You know, it's a sexual feeling almost. You know, uh-huh. like when you hear something or you, you go, fuck, man, I could do that. Or what, what is that? And, uh-huh. Uh-huh. He said, you got to remember the first time you, you p- played a note on your horn and it sounded good. Do you remember that first time? Right, right. I, I remember the first time uh, I was improvising yeah. and I felt something. I said, whoa, that's, right. that's what we're doing here. The discovery the moment. The discovery moment. Yeah. And so as you get older, it gets harder and harder to get to this place. And I think this is what drives people more and more to, to try to tune out the world and try to get back to this thing and try to remember this thing. I mean, in, in a weird, twisted way, it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing, but it, it, oddly, it, it's also uh, specifically addictive. That you, in, in, in the same way that you're chasing that first note, that first moment of discovery, it's like, well, how am I going to get back into that? First kiss, man. Yeah, right? First kiss. How do I get back? Shit, if I knew then what I know now. Right, right. So, so, that, you know, so that feeling, you know, and in, in to frame it as, as a spiritual search for truth or just a basic search for truth of where, you know, something happens that'll never happen again and you're going to be touched by God or, or touched by that moment of brilliance that, you know, that is what the life is about, right? Goes back to how we started talking about making your mistakes in public. You got to uh, uh, introduce an element of risk, of real risk, 
You could really fail here. Something bad could really happen for something good to really happen. Now, it's only good in terms of yourself. The people out there, they don't often know the difference. But that's not why we're out there. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, as I continue to work in what I do, you know, that the difference between, you know, having an, having an act yeah. or, right. or, or being a guy. Right. You know, you're going to be a guy, you're going to have an act. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there's very few cats that do it. And one of the only cats that do it, and, you know, it's, it's very, and it's uh, like Richard Lewis. Yeah. Is, is, uh, he's a guy. He's a guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a very easy way, you know, in the way that culture is structured in, in, in how people see failure or success or whatever, has been. I tell you, man, I've been talking to dudes who, who time has forgotten. You know, culturally. Yes. You know, like, uh, you know, when, especially with musicians and some comics. And, you know, these are guys that have big hits and, and everyone's like, what happened to that guy? And nine times out of 10, man, well, they've been doing the best work they've ever done in their life, mm-hmm. you know, since they <laughs> fell out of the, the public eye. You know, they've never been happier. They got freedom. They're exploring things they never would have explored and they're fine. That's you right. know, and you talk to like a guy like Richard Lewis and he's got that hunger where he's like, I'm going to go out there with nothing and I'm going to fucking ride it. And I'm going to I'm going to search for that thing that happens only on stage. Like, in, I'm not comparing myself, but, you know, in the same way I was just in Indianapolis. And the funny thing about me, I don't know if you ever have this experience, where given all the technology we have to very easily at least record yourself, you know, in a basic way, mm-hmm. I, you know, before I go on, I'm like, no, nah, I'm not fucking, I'm not going to turn right. it on. What, what difference does it make? Yeah. Because, like, if you think I'm going to listen to that, in my heart and in my mind, it's the moment. That's it. Well, I'm not going to be able to recapture that thing. And as soon as you start trying to, like, you know, I had that moment, and it's like it was one line. I should be able to recapture that line. You're probably not going to be able to do it. Absolutely not. And it's going to throw your timing off. (laughs) That's the real problem with trying to remember something. I I, I hate rehearsing. Mm -hmm. I'm notoriously bad at rehearsing. Because I figure when you rehearse, it just gives you more to forget. You're going to go on stage and say, now I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember this. And you're going to forget something Mm -hmm. so why not just go up there and forget everything you know (laughs) start over (laughs) yeah so all right so then let's get you because i I know you did a lot of records you're doing all right and you had your breakthrough in in your mid uh, 30s to you found your groove you stick with that groove but it seems to me that there's a couple albums recently you know outside of the the jewish record which we talked about a little bit but it seems like this Garcia Lorca record was a big yeah, is a big, big record for you. Yeah, big record. And the Dylan record a little bit. Big record. The first one is the Garcia Lorca record, which what, was a Grammy nominated record. Grammy nominated record. And what happened was I was uh, traveling in Spain doing yeah. playing some gigs, and my son uh, was going to school in Seville. So I went to uh, Seville to visit him. Yeah. And uh, then he and I went to Granada, which is just down the road uh, for a little concert. And uh, for some reason, I was getting some play, I, you know, and so I was getting interviewed a lot. Uh-huh. And a guy is doing an interview with me. He's an editor of uh, El País, big paper. And we're in his hotel suite, and he's got three good-looking chicks around him, you know. And I'm thinking, wow, what's going on? You know, and they're all asking if you want coffee and yeah. everything. Well, one of them, uh, it turned out they were, you know, part of his intellectual circle. And one of them uh, was Laura Garcia Lorca, the niece of Federico mm-hmm. Garcia Lorca. Great poet. The best. <laughs> the Bob Dylan slash Abraham Lincoln of Spain. Yeah. Let's just say that. He's, yeah. he's everything to Spain. Yeah. He was murdered. He was one of the first casualties of the Spanish Civil War, 36. He was gay. He he. They thought he was a communist. I mean, he was everything you weren't allowed to be in Franco Spain. But also everything that represents the not only the creative spirit of an artist, but the rebellious spirit of an artist, and 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 also the you know he was you know he his art meant something. Yes, 
his art meant something, and he was associated with Dali and Bunuel mm-hmm. and modernism, mm-hmm. man. This was mm-hmm. the 20th century yeah. cat. Yeah. So anyway, they're going to do uh, a tribute to, to Lorca to, I don't know, 50 years, 75 years since his, his assassination. And Laura, his niece, is in charge of his estate, and we're hanging. She says, look, why don't you come on over here? Uh, in a couple of months and uh, perform uh, and, and a lot of people Patty Smith had gone uh, I forget who else uh, a lot of people were doing these tributes to him yeah so I said great I didn't know anything about Lorca yeah. <laughs> so I went home <laughs> you knew uh, he was a big guy I knew he was a big guy <laughs> yeah, yeah. I knew the name of one or two of his poems yeah yeah. I went, <laughs> yeah. I went to uh, a party that night when I got home I, I live in Madison, Wisconsin university town I'm at a party with uh, you know locals I say, anybody here know anything about Lorca? The guy says, oh my gosh, I wrote my dissertation on Lorca. The next day, he brings over to my house a stack of books on Lorca. I got six weeks to pull this together. Yeah. For six weeks, I did nothing but read Lorca day and night and try to learn enough Spanish to pull this off. How'd you read them, though? I mean, what were you, I mean, how do you, when you take something like, because I've dealt, you know, I did that with some of your records. You know, that like, you know, I, I'm a pretty sensitive cat and I, you know, I can take shit in, but you know, you got to figure out, you know, how does this yeah. get into people's hearts? I mean, you're talking right. about a nation uh, who who love this man and, and right. he's a respected literary figure, so you got to approach him as an artist. You, you got to approach him uh, with more, uh, uh, distance than if you just happened to stumble on them and it was something you were digging because mm-hmm. you're now responsible to these people's memories and mm-hmm. that's that's what was kind of uh, the dance I was trying to do. My Spanish is rudimentary, so I couldn't do it in Spanish. Yeah, okay. But at the same time, his language is very poetic and and flowery, and mm-hmm. so the feeling it's like music. You know, you can't translate. Uh, bebop into country music and say well i'm playing bebop just similar you can't translate him into english and say i'm doing Lorca. but there are certain elements he deals with like the stuff that we're talking about he has this uh notion of duende duende is like soul mm-hmm. right the, the duende uh, for Lorca is in the bullring mm-hmm. where the matador and the bull are face to face and there's that moment you could die or you could triumph and that's why everybody's screaming uh for the mm-hmm. victory of the human against the beast mm-hmm. it's a great metaphor mm-hmm. uh and so there are a lot of these elements that i start absorbing and absorbing and absorbing so eventually six weeks on man i'm in granada and i'm at the the childhood home of garcia Lorca. it's called the huerta de san vicente it's where he grew up it's where he lived it's where he was dragged out by his heels in 1936 into the uh, countryside and murdered is mm-hmm. a very important iconic place mm-hmm. and Laura God bless her has decided to take Lorca's personal piano out of the house into the garden and I'm going to play it on this event never been done the piano's never been moved first of all there's a myth about the piano that it's haunted Second of all, they actually, back in 1936, when they thought Lorca was a communist, they thought he was hiding a radio transmitter. In that piano? In the piano. So they took the piano apart. So now this is the mythical piano. This is bird's horn. This is, I don't know, this is George Washington's axe. Now, how much, uh, now, in in your general life, how much credence do you pay those, you know, ritual artifacts or, 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 or things that are loaded, you know, magic instruments, magic spaces? I mean, is this part of your, your mind? and heart i i i don't believe and i don't disbelieve it's like you know uh i i maybe some uh totems can have power i don't know i think maybe uh, i guess it's it's but it's really directly related to how you feel about it i mean how did you feel about playing that piano i mean it was it was a terrible piano (laughs) (laughs) it was you were like oh shit (laughs) oh shit it was a terrible (laughs) instrument yeah um 
it, first of all, it, it was so old you couldn't tune it. I yeah. mean, it wouldn't go up to tune. It was it was the action was a, it was an old piano. It was 110 years old, a parlor piano. So you were thinking on a practical level. What am I going to do? Yeah, because this is not what I thought I was going to do. Yeah. So we're out there. But the interesting thing is that piano definitely is haunted. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's a ghost, <laughs> but it's haunted. It's something happens. You know, it's got this sound, this weirdness. So anyway. We play this gig, yeah. and it's very dramatic. I mean, we're under the moon. There's the Alhambra behind us. There's a couple hundred people scattered out in the garden. I'm uh -huh. playing Lorca's piano, and I'm saying into the microphone, 76 years ago or 65 <laughs> years ago today yeah. on this piano and this place, yeah, you know, and yeah. I'm telling the stories. Yeah. And, and I'm telling all these stories. And at the end of the night, the sound guy comes up to me, and he hands me a dad, a digital recording. Yeah. He said, I don't know if you want this, man, but I just recorded the thing tonight. I threw it in my bag. I didn't listen to it for a couple of months. Uh -huh. <laughs> and a couple of months later, I put it on. I went, oh, shit. This is, there are spirits here. Yeah, man. This yeah, is yeah, moving. Yeah, yeah. So I edited it down. I decided, well, the only way anybody's going to take this seriously is if it's contextualized. Why would anybody care about this unless we can tell them why they should care? Yeah. So I got Laura and I got a bunch of Lorca scholars and they gave me access to all of Lorca's drawings and papers and we put together this package. And... Uh, it became huge in Spain, as you can imagine. Nice. And suddenly, in Spain, uh, I get to, just like in, in France, I get to go on shows where we don't even talk about music. We talk about uh, America, mm -hmm. heaven help us, mm -hmm. you know? So in Spain, I got to talk about uh, Lorca and how it translates to a jazz guy. I, they, they didn't want me to parse Lorca for them. Yeah. He's theirs. They own him. But they they were very uh, into the fact that it. I found a way to connect, and it and, was very moving. And how 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 what was that way in retrospect? I mean, like, what you where where did you see the inter? Uh, you found the intersection in Duende, in terms because that seems to be the same way you were talking about those moments on stage. that can't be recaptured. There's a there's a you know a metaphorically a life or death situation there. And there's also a thing in Lorca's life. Uh, I mean, you can uh, cl the cliched way maybe to say modernism mm -hmm. or uh, 20th century uh -huh. uh, but it's it, this this connects to the Jewish thing yeah. you know uh, Lorca his work was all about the outsider in the face of, of fascism mm -hmm. I mean it was all about the individual about nature about small things in life about the heart mm -hmm. and you know by the time I did the Lorca thing I was deep into this Jewish thing yeah and there was something that was kind of opening up and I was more interested in getting in touch with this than I was interested in being hip and that was a revelation to me. My whole life was, you know. There you go. That's what age is, huh? Yeah, maybe so. So that's what, yeah, the the hipster record, and where you're talking about, uh, you know, that that riff you do on hipsters. You may, know, may, don't cry for no hipster. He knew what he signed up for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, but you made it through. All right. So okay. So the age thing, the Jewish thing. What what are you identifying as the Jewish thing right there? Well, it's not religion. That's for no, sure. no. I, I get that. Uh, the the Jewish thing is being a stranger in a strange land. Okay. The Jewish thing is being somebody who's connected to the the, the story, the yeah. tradition. Yeah. I mean, my feeling is, look, if God exists, that's clearly a miracle. Yeah. But if God doesn't exist, that means we worship a story. And if we worship a story, and that story has moved so much history, that's a miracle too. Yeah. So let's look into this idea of why people need a story so much. What, yeah. are, people get, what are people getting out of this idea of contextualizing themselves in terms of bigger things, bigger themes, guilt, uh, revenge, all the things that are in the Bible, but 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 love and compassion and, and mm -hmm. that there's more that separate that keeps us together than separates it. Mm -hmm. So to me, 
look, if anybody can convert, then everybody has the inner Jew. That's the first thing. I don't think Jew, uh, being a Jew is so uh, ethnically based. I think, uh, especially as we go forward in the 21st century, the Jewish thing is tied up with this American idea of social justice, which is a, a, a huge, uh, in many ways, myth that, that was made by Jewish uh, musicians, uh, Jewish filmmakers, mm -hmm. you know, this idea that in America, the little guy triumphs and love wins out over everything. Yeah. You know, you look that, around you, there's no evidence. It's a, definitely a myth. <laughs> no yeah. evidence of any of this yeah. stuff. But this is the myth of social justice. This is a myth of caring. This is the myth of tikkun olam, which is the Jewish expression for healing the world, leaving mm -hmm. the world a better mm -hmm. place. So to me, I... I, I like that myth. Yeah. I mean, you got to buy some myth. That's the myth I, I buy. I think that's important. I think it, it, it's, it's real, and you can uh, take it to the bank. And yeah. uh, that was my point of contact with Lorca. It's my point Fighting of contact. Fighting the good fight. Yeah, man. Yeah. You know, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down here with these guys. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. So now, was it a similar thing with, uh, with the... You know, now, like, for somebody to approach Dylan... Well, yeah, 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 I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel that there's a big love there. Well, you know, Dylan, yeah, absolutely, because I'm not a singer either, and he's not a singer. That was the first thing when I heard Dylan. The first thing I yeah. thought was, oh man, he can do that. Any, we can do it. And I think Dylan actually is the reason why we got all this punk rock and rap and everything. He just opened it up. You didn't have to have a beautiful voice. Yeah, that's the first thing. But the second thing, quite obviously, is the words that are coming out of his mouth. Where do they come from? Dude? He doesn't know. I mean, that's like it's he astounding. He he didn't know then. He doesn't know now. And and uh, so no, I would never have approached Dylan uh, uh, until I got to the point where it didn't matter, and yeah. I was able to go to his songs. Yeah. And what happened was I started playing a couple of tunes on gigs. I, I played Subterranean Homesick Blues, which you know mm -hmm. that was one of my favorites because the language. Was, and you swing it up a little. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I say it, again, it's like it's got a little hip hop thing. Yeah. I said, Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat, bad job laid off, says he got a bad cough, got to get it paid off. Look out, kids. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so people, after the gig, are coming up to me and saying, man, I never understood Dylan's lyrics until, I, until you, because he swallows them, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, he doesn't yeah. So I start introducing more and more. Mm. And the next thing I know, I got a set of Dylan material that's totally uh, in my pocket, in my bag. Mm-hmm. So I'm in France, and uh, the one thing I wanted to do if I was going to do Dylan yeah. is try to get it haunted. Yeah. You know, this idea of haunted stuff is very appealing to me because by haunted, what I mean is sound, uh -huh. where the sound is probably more important than the content and the ad literal notes or the information. And you can't stay in your comfort zone to do this because, I mean, I know all the great studios in L.A. and all the great players, and I could get them in here in a heartbeat, and we could, and it would be great, but it won't be haunted. Mm -hmm. Right, and if you listen to those early Dylan records, they are definitely haunted. Who is this guy? Where is he oh, from? Yeah, and he's, the way John Hammond recorded that stuff was right. a little bizarre. You know, it was just so stripped down, stripped down, and yeah. he's howling. You yeah. know, you get this howling thing. Well, he's bringing the history of the folk tradition uh, upon us, and he's totally revealing something. Now yeah. it turned out it was a lie. That was so unbelievable. That wasn't his voice. Yeah. It was a lie. Oh my God! But it's a lie to tell. Yeah, it was Ramblin' Jack Elliott's voice. Uh, Woody Guthrie <laughs> Woody threw Ramblin' Jack. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. But it told such a profound truth at the time when we needed to hear it yeah. that none of that mattered. Yeah. So to get it haunted, 
I recorded it in a farmhouse in Spain with a bunch of European musicians uh-huh. who are good players, yeah. but ex- approached it from an exotic point of view. Well, they they probably they probably didn't have the cultural history with Dylan. You no, know, as a matter of fact, we were doing Tangled Up in Blue, and the drummer stopped and said, what is this song about? Yeah. <laughs> and I had to stop and say, he's on the road, he's got this girl, he's got that girl, he's tangled up in blue. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting because out of all the songs, I mean, that, you know, in terms of the sort of stripped down, somewhat, you know, heartbreaking poetry, that's more Spanish than the other ones. Well, that's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you know, nobody even asks what Highway 61 means. It's just too far off the Oh, yeah, yeah. You just get, you're just jamming. You're just jamming. Well, that's, a, I mean, that was ambitious. Now, have you had any contact with Dylan? Does he, has he ever... Well, uh, no. I, the mountain has not come to Mohammed, but I'll, I'll tell you <laughs> something. Uh, I would be shocked if I ever do hear from him. Uh, I, I actually would, be, in some ways... Uh, I would be a little, uh, it's not disappointed. It's not disappointed because I would love one. You know, I met him a couple times. Yeah. Uh, he's a cranky old Jewish guy. He's a cranky you old know? guy, man. <laughs> yeah, the, the, right. You know, the feeling I have is that uh, I did my, my best job. Sure. And I know uh, his manager digs it. I know yeah. I've gotten. Well, that's cool. Yeah, that's people cool. dig I it. I had his son in here, you know. Jake? And, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got a buddy who's a big Dylan fan, and every time Dylan's touring, my buddy goes and sees him many times. But, you know, I, I would ask him, you know, what are you doing this weekend? He's like, I'm going to see the old Jew. You got it. You know, it is. It's like going to Shul. You can't understand a word he's saying. <laughs> yeah. He's davening. He's howling. Yeah. You know. You but can, he's still doing it. He's, you know, he, it's a very, it. It's a very interesting decision he made that, that it seems to me, you know, he can't need the bread. You know, and and it just seems like you know, at some point he said, "I'm going out like this." But see, that's the Jewish thing. That's that, that's my point about this whole thing. Um, you know, they say the Jews are the people of the book, but the book isn't the the Torah. The book is the Talmud, which is the commentaries on the Torah, which is people sitting around the ongoing in a, argument, the ongoing argument. Yeah, and you got to get in a room with the other people to have the argument. Right. You don't tweet into the argument. Mm-hmm. You're sitting around. It's ongoing. Mm. It's it's the rolling horizon of the questions of life. Yeah. And you stay out there and you stay out there and that's what it is. And in the process, you try to make things a little better than they were when you found them to bring a little truth to the fore. And uh, that's it. That's the that's the mission. That's, that that is it. That's beautiful, man. And and is that the through line of there was a fire? That's the through line of there was a fire. The book. Jews music and the American dream. It's about. These people hit the ground running from Russia. They had nothing in their pockets. Between 1880 and 1922, million of them showed up on the Lower East Side, the biggest pocket of poverty in the world. And from there, they it all came. They created the popular song form. You the know, movies. At one, at one point, the garment business. They, <laughs> they created. This, a, but but this is the beauty. The garment business. This is a great. This is a great example. The reason they were into the needle trade yeah. is back in Russia, they weren't allowed to sell clothes. They yeah. weren't allowed to have a business, yeah. right? Yeah. They could repair, they, the rag trade comes sure. from, they would take rags and sew it into clothes and sell it, right? Yeah. They get to America, they got, now they got sewing machines, yeah. right? The next thing you know, they invent exact size clothing, right? Yeah. They democratize clothing. Now yeah. everybody can look good. Yeah. It's not that they wanted to do that. It's yeah. that the Jewish impulse somehow, when it intersects with technology and modernity, pushes us forward. There's, some, there's something in this narrative that we participate in. Oh, interesting, yeah. It's so, haunt, you, uh, so you took it from the needles to the horns to the, yeah, all of it. Well, these same, these same guys who yeah. started the rag trade started the, uh, uh, the, the business of song publishing, and they started Hollywood. You know, Hollywood started yeah, with the guys. The Jewish kings, yeah, the junk man. And they, the th- fascinating thing about that to me was 
and they created the, the myth of America that, you know, it's, it's very hard to distinguish, yep. you know, would America be what America is without their conception of it that they put in the movies? That's right. It, it certainly would not. Mm-hmm. It would not be. You know, this was a very specific dream that was being presented here. Huh. It's and, fascinating. You know, uh, they asked Irving Berlin, yeah. so what's Jewish about your success? Yeah. He says, nothing, I'm an American. They yeah. asked George Gershwin, saying, what's Jewish about you? He said, nothing, I'm an American. I asked Bob Krasnow, is he an executive, so what's Jewish about this? Nothing, it's, I'm an American. You know, that's the most Jewish thing you can say. Is being Jewish has nothing to do with it in America, yeah. right? <laughs> you don't you don't want to draw attention to yourself. <laughs> Nobody here but us chickens, man. Thanks, Ben. Good talk. Thanks, Mark. All right, that's our show. I learned and felt so good about that conversation. I hope you enjoyed that. Go to wtfpod.com. Get all your WTF Pod needs met. Pick up a new poster. Get the new T-shirt. Do the thing. Get the app. Uh, leave a comment if you'd like. blah blah What have I got going on? What's coming up for me? Oh, PodFest. PodFest. Got the Rochester Fringe Festival coming up. Um, look up PodFest, though, because I'm doing that. We're doing a live WTF. What have I got this weekend? Going on that boat with Jesse Thorne's crew. Oh, I'm writing my show, man. I'm writing and doing stand-up and doing the podcast. My bucket is full. It's overflowing. I gotta fucking get... I gotta get a new bucket. I gotta figure out how to get a little more bottom end on this bucket. Oh, my God. Boomer lives! <laughs>